0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. For any of you with an interest in local history, easily available online is Richmond and Vollette's 1857 History of DuPage County which includes some fascinating descriptions of what our area was like just two decades after the 1833 Treaty of Chicago sparked widespread settlement of the area. Here's a general assessment of the lay of the land. I quote, DuPage County is generally level and contains fair proportions of timber and prairie. It is ranked as an agricultural county. The soil is well adapted to grazing and produces abundant crops of all kinds of grain. The chief staples are corn, wheat, rye, oats, and potatoes, but barley, buckwheat, peas, and beans are cultivated to some extent. Considerable attention is given to fruit raising. Rare and delicate plants are to be found in few gardens, but the horse chestnut and various other species of the ornamental class are generally introduced. The forests furnish a good variety of shade trees, affording timber and fuel, and the inhabitants of the western part of the county have recourse to the big woods, which lie partly in this county. Maps from the time show the big woods mentioned here as a forest stretching from west of Aurora all the way up to Winfield and Warrenville. Near another forested area, Pierce Downers Grove, we also find the following charming description of the area's fauna. Quote, until within a few years, this part of the county was infested with wolves, which were a great source of annoyance to the whole community. To rid the county of these mischievous animals, it was the custom for all who were able to bear arms to rally once a year for a wolf hunt, which was usually a scene of much amusement. Generally, a race of three to five miles would bring Mr. Wolf down. Then the day's sport would be ended, and the party would return home in a sort of triumphal procession, bearing the fallen hero. I gather that wolves were already becoming rare when this passage was written. And by the 1860s, they were extinct from Illinois. Not much is left of the big woods, either, or of Downer's Grove. The county's population at the time was about 12,000. Now it's nearly a million, so it isn't an agricultural county anymore either. What agriculture there is hereabouts, as anyone who has driven through the rest of the state knows, is almost entirely two products, corn and soybeans. Not much of the wheat, rye, oats, barley, peas, and others from 1857. The introduced species of the ornamental class, that the history mentions are rare no longer, however. In fact, a great deal of the vegetation you'll see strolling along the prairie path or wherever is buckthorn, honeysuckle, garlic mustard, and so forth brought by European settlers. Two of these, incidentally, were Stefan and Christina Elson, my wife's great, great, great grandparents who arrived in Winfield in 1858 from Germany. Someone else who witnessed many of the changes to our area was Simon Pokagon, a Potawatomi chief born in 1830, just a few years before his father, Leopold, negotiated at the Treaty of Chicago for his band to be allowed to remain on their ancestral land in southwest Michigan, while all the rest of the tribe were forced north or westward. Simon Pokagon lived to be present at that greatest of all cultural symbols of progress in our area, the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago. He was invited there to give a speech and addressed the crowd in part as follows. The cyclone of civilization rolled westward. And the forests of untold centuries were swept away. Streams dried up. Lakes fell back from their ancient bounds. And all our fathers once loved to gaze upon was destroyed, defaced, or marred. On the storm cloud rolled, while before its thunder and lightning, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air withered like grass before the flame, shot for love of power to kill alone and left to spoil upon the plains. The storm, unsatisfied on land, swept our lakes and streams, while before its clouds of hooks, nets, and spears, the fish vanished from our waters, like the morning dew before the rising sun. Thus our inheritance was cut off, and we were driven and scattered as sheep. Pokagon describes here a blighted land, ruined by greed and wanton cruelty. That was 130 years ago. It's hard to imagine what he'd say about the area now. There are, however, some striking parallels between Pokagon's words and those of the prophet Joel, from whom we heard this morning. We don't know when Joel wrote his prophecy addressed to the people of Judah, possibly shortly after the Assyrians demolished the northern kingdom of Israel but also possibly later after Judah itself was overwhelmed by Babylon and the temple destroyed. Certainly, Joel is speaking into a time of social and political devastation, like many of the prophets and like Pokagon. But it's notable that like Pokagon, Joel also paints a vivid picture of environmental devastation, an invading army of locusts. And a devouring fire are portents of the day of the Lord, a day of darkness and gloom. For Joel, the day of the Lord is at hand, and it is great and very awesome. It is a day of judgment. Who can endure it? He asks. In a remarkable pivot, however, at Book 2, verse 12, the Lord himself begins to speak. And out of the gloom and doom, God speaks words of comfort. The day of the Lord can also be a day of deliverance and blessing, he says, if only his people will return to them with all their heart. They must rend their hearts and not their garments. For the Lord our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster." And then at verse 18, there is another pivot. And Joel begins to relate the ways God will indeed relent. He says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And Joel lists the following promises. First, to his people, the Lord says, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil. You will be satisfied and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Next, however, come the verses we read this morning, beginning with, Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for your pastures are green. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Zion is the Lord's holy mountain, on which the Lamb stands in John's revelation, more on which shortly. Who are the children of Zion? Given that Joel has God issuing promises equally to his people, to the soil, and to the animals and plants of the field, I see no reason why the expression might not encompass all of the above. One connection between our reading from Joel today and our gospel passage from John is clear. In the latter, Jesus continues the farewell address to his little children, the disciples, that Father Arcadi spoke about last week he has washed their feet and given them the new commandment to love one another just as he has loved them. He then tells them that he is going away to the father in whose house there are many dwelling places and where he'll prepare a place for them, but also that he will come to them. This last phrase assuredly points toward his resurrection and appearance to the disciples before the ascension, but it also refers to the second coming, the same day of the Lord that Joel describes, and John also in Revelation. You might think, though, from certain features of our Gospel reading that John is picturing this day rather differently from Joel. For Joel, as we saw, the day of the Lord came with promises of blessing to the whole created world. In John, however, Jesus' words about going away to his father's house, about how he does not reveal himself to the world, and about how he doesn't give us peace as the world gives, might suggest that he is returning to take us out of this world, into heaven, presumably. John's message might then appear to be otherworldly, in contrast to Joel's prophecy of worldly blessing. And in one sense, I think that is John's message. The word world, cosmos in Greek, appears frequently in John's writing. More than half its appearances in the New Testament are in his gospel and epistles. Its meaning varies, but one way John frequently uses it is to refer to the human world in a state of rebellion. For instance, in the very next verse after our passage today, Jesus speaks of the ruler of this world, the devil, who deceived our first parents and all of us following him into rebellion. In this sense, being rescued out of this world is precisely what we long for, rest at last, after a life of struggle amid sin and temptation. Saint Augustine writes, this indeed is the ultimate bliss, the end of ultimate fulfillment that knows no end. Here in this world, we are called blessed when we enjoy peace, however little may be the peace which can be enjoyed here. And yet, such blessedness as this life affords proves to be utter misery when compared with that final bliss, that end where our peace shall be so perfect and so great as to admit of neither improvement nor increase." Augustine sees the peace Christ says he leaves with his disciples in John, which we now hope for by faith and someday will possess in full, as the fulfillment that will lay to rest all our natural desires, a peace so perfect it can neither improve nor increase. He identifies this with the face-to-face vision of God, knowing God, even as we are known. But as much as I love Augustine, I think that in this direction, theological peril lurks. And I think this because I'm pretty sure another of my great theological heroes, St. Thomas Aquinas, fell prey to it. Aquinas was a great admirer of Augustine and tried to spell out the implications of the idea that our hearts would someday rest in God with all our natural desires fulfilled. If this is so, Aquinas reasoned, we won't need food or drink or clothing or shelter anymore. And as a result, he reasoned, there won't be any need for the things we use to supply these needs in life. Accordingly, he concludes, in the renewed creation after the judgment, there will be no plants or other animals. I quote, since the renewal of the world will be for man's sake, it follows that it should be conformed to the renewal of man. Now, by being renewed, man will pass to a state of everlasting rest And consequently, the world will be renewed in such a way as to throw off all corruption and remain forever at rest. Therefore, nothing will be subject to that renewal unless it be a subject of incorruption. Now, such are the heavenly bodies and humans. On the other hand, animals and plants are corruptible, both in their whole and in their parts, and hence they will not remain in this renewal, but those things alone which we have mentioned above. So, Aquinas thinks the new heavens and the new earth will consist of bare, static, celestial spheres inhabited by people rejoicing in the vision of God. I will be frank with you. I find this view repulsive. I think Thomas dropped the ball here big time. And I think he should have known better, too, as a student of the scriptures. He should have known, for instance, that when Jesus tells the disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, in our reading, he is echoing the traditional Hebrew blessing May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace, that is, shalom. We get an echo of that blessing in the first verse of our psalm today, too, which says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. But note that the blessed state the psalm depicts involves not only all the peoples praising God, but also the earth yielding its increase. Similarly with our reading from Revelation, there will be a city there, John says, no temple because God is the temple in the midst of the city, but flowing right through the middle of the city, a river with the water of life, bright as crystal, with fruit trees growing along it that heal the nations. Nothing there is accursed or unclean. The curse on Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you is undone. This is a portrait of a land in which, as Joel says, the soil, plants, and animals need not be afraid. Almost certainly the most famous occurrence of the word cosmos in John's gospel is in chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world. We certainly could read the world in this verse as referring, like we saw above, to humanity in a state of rebellion, but I see no reason we have to read it this way. We might well suppose that God loved this whole thing so much that he sent his son into it, that we might dwell in it eternally in shalom. Now, my understanding is that theological opinions are very much divided about what precisely our role is supposed to be in bringing about this peaceable kingdom, and I'm not altogether sure myself, but our gospel reading today pretty plainly alludes to one thing we'd better be up to. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, Jesus says. And he says it, as I noted earlier, just after washing the disciples' feet and commanding them to do likewise for one another. We'd better obey that then. And while no sermon could encapsulate all that it means to do so, I think one element our readings today strongly suggest it involves is neither becoming nor allowing our neighbors to become the sort of people who would feel out of place in the kingdom of Shalom, who would feel uneasy there, or uncomfortable, or even afraid. And remember, this is a kingdom in which the soil and the plants and animals, according to Joel, do not feel afraid. I take it this is a fairly different looking landscape than the one we currently inhabit. It's not a wilderness. The presence of a city in John's revelation makes that clear. And there will be agricultural bounty enough for all. But the agricultural journalist Tom Philpot quotes a leading agronomist's estimation that in corn, soy, monoculture states like Illinois, the topsoil is currently being used up and washed into the Mississippi River at about 17 times the rate of replacement We are literally losing the earth under our feet. All of that soil saturated with glyphosate herbicides like Roundup when it reaches the Gulf of Mexico creates a hypoxic dead zone each year bigger than the state of Connecticut. This is not the crystal bright water of life. The soil here now has every reason to be afraid, as do the animals when we ourselves dose our yards with pesticides and herbicides that kill everything but the Kentucky bluegrass covering our lawns, which, contrary to its name, is another invasive species from Eurasia. As for the wolf, we heard what happened to him in these parts long ago. What would a land look like in which the wolf and the soil were not afraid, in which the ground wasn't cursed with buckthorn and knotweed and roundup, in which, moreover, the descendants of the Elsons and the Potawatomi might live side by side in shalom. I don't know. But just about the most frightening thing I can think of is that were I to behold such a land, I wouldn't feel at peace living there. That is a fate we must all, in obedience to our Lord's command, Love one another by enabling one another to avoid. Amen.